0: Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hi, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk, where the motto is real talk, big topics. And I have a guest on this week, a repeat guest, in fact, that I am so excited to welcome back. We love to dig into um, difficult but worthwhile topics here on the podcast. And today's guest is not only a cognitive psychotherapist, she's also the author of a new book that has just been released. It's called This Book Won't Make You Happy. God, I love the title of this. And our (laughs) guest is Nero Feliciano, who you may have heard on a few episodes back. Hi, Nero. How
1: are you? Hi, Sunny. Doing well. Happy to be here. You're one of those people I
0: feel like I feel like we're friends in addition to being professional acquaintances. And I just am immediately calmed by your energy. So I'm good. I'm good oh. talking to you. How are you? How have you yeah. been over the past couple of years?
1: Oh my gosh. I know. Through pandemic and kids and book writing, it's it's been a crazy time, but Grateful, very grateful. Yes. And grateful to be coming out of it. Kids doing well, you know, those things, the important things.
0: The important things. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're going to talk about today. And you're, you're the mom of four kids. Yeah. Um, we live in the Northeast. We were just laughing off camera about the gray skies that are still outside. Cold.
1: The- it is cold. Oh. It was snowing two days ago. It's almost <gasps> April. Uh, I, I need to move where you are.
0: Listen, I we got a guest room, we got space. Um, <laughs> it is nice. And I want to get to that toward the end of this interview too, like the different yeah. experiences of the pandemic that we all had. Yeah. Depending on our geography and the mm-hmm. impact of that. Um, but let's talk about your book. I, I have been going over this and I, I guess it's partly because I know your voice and I know your tone and yeah. how you communicate so beautifully in general, but it came across like a great chat with a friend, like a, mm. like an, a friend that you can feel vulnerable with. And mm. um, I, I'm, am I don't know, I just immediately kind of fell into it. Tell us how this all got started and how you became an author, which we were also talking about offline, kind of serendipitously,
1: right? Yeah, very serendipitously. And I know it doesn't happen like this for many people, but I had thought about writing this book. I had given a talk um, I think it was two thousand and seventeen on contentment and the practices that help us feel more content with our life, even without anything circumstantial changing. And that talk got a very big response. So, I had put together this book proposal, which I tabled because we entered the pandemic, and I had four kids remote learning at home. I wasn't about to sit down and start writing a book, and especially as a psychotherapist during a national mental health crisis. I stayed working and really busy and had patients come back from everywhere. But um, in 2020, I received an email from an acquisitions editor asking if I was working on any book proposals, which I thought it was a joke. I sent that email to some author friends. I was like, is this a prank? Is this a joke? I mean, someone's asking me if I am working on a book, which I had written that proposal and tabled. So that's how the book came about. And um, kind of had a natural evolution while I was writing it, um, just in terms of including different things that became relevant as we were living it during the pandemic.
0: Yeah. I, I knew you were my people. I mean, I've known you were my people for a long time because <laughs> I've been on and off chatting for a while. But when you said in the book, you're sitting next to your friend who's talking about in April, the summer she has planned out for your kids, <laughs> and you're like, Mm-mm, Like, right. this is so me to a yeah. T. I, I just, uh, your your general philosophy on taking things as they come just really mm. really resonates with me. Yeah. Not that mom, not the summer. Plan. No,
1: no. Well, it's like, you know, when your life is full and busy, I have four kids, I have a practice, they have their own worlds of activities and, and we want to parent them too, right? We want to have conversations with them. I can only take things one thing at a time, right. you know, and that's really what's taught me how to do that was saying okay this is all I can manage right now and that's okay that's right. okay
0: yeah I want to get into expectations and mm. shutting ourselves as yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> But let's let's start off at the top first um I think it's important to make a distinct distinction as you really eloquently do in this book between happiness and contentment mm. why both are worthy goals yeah at certain
1: points in our lives but how they're different so can you walk us through that? Absolutely. So I define in the book very simply, if happiness is having everything you want, then contentment is wanting everything you have. And it's really happiness in and of itself is not a bad thing. We want that. We want to feel happy. It's just the definition that we've been sold by our culture of happiness that's creating more stress and anxiety. And that really is happiness that's based on acquisition or achievement or moving up some sort of ladder of success that we're striving for. And we see this with our kids now in terms of how they're navigating life and what we've told them is important to be successful. And we often fall into it ourselves on many different levels. So because we're so caught up in that process, we don't always stop and look at, okay, what's good already? What do I have to enjoy? What are these things in life that can make me feel fulfilled? without acquisition or achievement so that's that's kind of the definition of contentment to be satisfied really with who you are what you have different parts of your life maybe not all of your life but certainly different parts that are still valuable and good and enough
0: and you can still be a goal-oriented person a person who hopes for more in many aspects but still be content right
1: yeah, you know, someone asked me that on an interview. They said, Are you saying to be content means you give up your goals? Contentment is complacency. I'm like, Look, sister, I got four kids, a therapy practice, and I wrote a book in a pandemic. I have goals. You know, it, I, I love goals. I think we need to set goals in order to move forward, and they keep us accountable. And there is research that says when you set goals, you are more likely to achieve whatever that outcome is. But especially for goal driven people, we often think, all right, I will be satisfied, content, and happy when I get there, when I achieve whatever that is that I've set out to do. And it's important that we balance that with moments of, okay, let me stop and take a breath and just enjoy the goal that I just achieved before going to the other one, or in the process of getting to that goal, focus on what is fulfilling right now.
0: Isn't there some science to show as well, Nero, that as you appreciate and have moments of gratefulness for what you have, then it actually clears the path sort of energetically for more success? I mean, doesn't it sort of open that channel to, not to get super woo-woo, but like there's no moving forward and achieving more without appreciating what you already
1: have, right? Absolutely. Well, there's some people who keep achieving, you know, they go from one goal, they hit that benchmark, and then all of a sudden that goal... (gasps) they go on to the next one, you know. Um, But you're absolutely right. For one, in that process of goal-driven achievement, we do experience stress. And when we can stop and and access those practices of gratitude, self-compassion, connecting with people who are important to us, it lowers stress. So when we neurobiologically lower stress in our body, it means less cortisol, less adrenaline. It gives us more mental space and neuro energy to put towards the things that we're actually moving towards, those goals. So we've seen when people access these practices, not only do they get to a a higher level of success, I mean, we see that with self-compassion alone, but they are healthier physically, they're healthier emotionally and mentally. Through all of these practices, Sunny, what amazed me most is there are correlations with longevity. People are living longer because they're physically healthier, because they've reduced stress in their life, and they feel more fulfilled by things that are more accessible. So all sorts of research, I talked about some of it in the book, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you become more successful when you can access gratitude and appreciation and um, connection, some of the few practices I talk about in the book.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in the book, guys, it's it's set up. The first half is all about why happiness is so hard to find. The second half mm. is what you call the eight keys to finding contentment. So let's start at the beginning mm. of the book. You walk, walk us sure. through so many things that are prevalent in society today that either knowingly or unknowingly kind of thro- kind of throw us off the path toward happiness mm. and contentment. Um, interestingly, you talk about dopamine, which is that, that feel-good chemical that we've all been told is something that we want to chase naturally or find a way to connect with naturally. But what was interesting to me, and I only discovered when reading your book, was um, there's an extra element to that constant chasing of next big goals and next big successes mm-hmm. that we don't know specifically about dopamine. Can you explain why using that as our pathway toward happiness might not be the most sustainable way to find it?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good distinction. And dopamine, you know, we hear about it in terms of the pleasure neurochemical. It shows up when we feel good. Um, it's associated with things that give us a natural high. But the thing about dopamine is it's only around when it's a new or novel pleasure. Once we get used to something, we no longer see dopamine. But it also seals this neurobiological reward pathway so when we experience that dopamine, and when it starts leveling off, we are urged to go seek it again, and we can see this in a very clear example on social media. You know, we talk about going on social media and getting that um, momentary pleasure when we get a comment or a like, or someone, you know, um, validates us in some way or another. But that wears off over time. So then we go and seek it again. We go back on. We spend more time. Um, we keep posting whatever it might be, and looking for those, um, you know, quick fixes of gratification, and that can translate to a lot of different things. It's I talk about in the book how like you buy this beautiful dress or pair of shoes and you love it so much for a little while. And all of a sudden you're looking for the next one because it doesn't give you that same rush of excitement or pleasure. That's that's dopamine wearing off, but then we tend to seek it again. So so yeah, the dopamine highs are something to be aware of.
0: And what, what's the more sustainable thing then to chase, Neuro, if it's yeah. not um, the acquisition part of it, if it's mm-hmm. not the finding a new goal and slaying it, kind of thing, yeah. what yeah. are we supposed to be placing?
1: Yeah, and you know those have a place. Those have a place in our life, like we talked about. I mean, they're good. We want some dopamine highs. Um, you know, there is excitement and pleasure like that. But when we feel like that's the only way that we can feel happy, that's when it gets dangerous. So aside from acquisition pleasure, I talk about appreciation pleasure the things that are more accessible. And they actually, what's interesting, and I talk about the pathways in the book, hopefully not in like medical doctor speak, like you said, I loved that. Um, It's more because that pathway um, and the other kind of acquisition, dopamine generating pathway, they tend to cancel each other out. So it's hard for us when we're chasing those dopamine highs to sit in that appreciation pleasure um, experience But we can train our minds to become more appreciative. So even just taking a walk, you live in beautiful, sunny Florida, which is something that I would appreciate right now in Connecticut. Um, But going outside and taking in your surroundings, um, the warmth of the sun, sitting in those moments and noticing those details also fill us with pleasure. But that's a more sustainable pleasure. Does that make sense? It's not um, this kind of one and done type of thing, and then we're seeking more because it's accessible. We can tap into it more often.
0: Well, and the danger, too, I mean, obviously, from a layman's perspective of acquisition pleasure, is that you acquire things and then things inadvertently clutter your space and your mental uh-huh. space. And then it becomes a cycle of, I chase it. I get it. I have it. I hate it. I want to get rid of it. I chase it. I have yes. it. I hate it. You know, And so I, I liked the distinction you made there because um, it's hard not to be impacted by what we see others doing or acquiring and feel like we might also chase that. I, I always say, I always joke, I feel like not quite a regular woman because I wish I liked shopping more. I wish yes. the pleasure of getting a new handbag or like I want, and I do, I don't, I, there was no lack of appreciation there, but I see on social media, which we're going to get to next, all yeah. of these um, posts about, you know, the next bag you need or the next pair of jeans you need. And mm. I want want that. I want to be that girl. I want to look cute in a row.
1: You do look cute. <laughs> You're, You're very cute. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's these two sides of me that just like, you know that are at war. It's it's hard to be in this current society and not be not feel pressure that you should be chasing things. To be honest,
1: that's right, that's right. And interesting what you say about clutter. I just did a segment about clutter, and there is research research to say that people who struggle with constant clutter, and I may fall into that category, um, <laughs> do do report. Um, lower levels of life satisfaction an increase in cortisol and adrenaline. So our major stress hormones and that longer term can result in more physical illness. So it's interesting. Like you, you hear that phrase clutter in your space equates to clutter in your mind. There's more truth than that, at least according to the research, um, than we would think. I love that. Let's, Mm. let's
0: delve into, um, social media, selfie culture. You did a decent Mm of your book to this. I loved, by the way, the mention of your daughter keeping your sixth grade picture on your phone. What? <laughs> As a reminder to like, <laughs> of what we used to have to do with growing up. Oh there my gosh. Numbers. There was no way to cutesy up your yearbook photo back no. then. I know. Who is this,
1: Uncle Raul? And you're like, no, that's me. <laughs> I'm like, that's your mother in eighth grade. This is not a 45 year old man, I'm sorry. Yes, you guys are cute, right? Oh, but so <laughs> it makes I mean, them feel better that, about themselves.
0: So. I know this is something we've heard you know, experts sort of uh, ring the bell on time and time again is the impact of selfie culture, social media mm-hmm. on our children, especially in their ability to find happiness and contentment. But what have you found in your practice about how it's impacting adults as well?
1: I mean, we, we know from the research that the more that you post, the more that you filter, especially selfies, makes us more hypocritical of of all the features on our face and flaws. So things that we may never have noticed before. And I talk about my own experience with that now doing what I'm doing on social media and how I became very um, hypercritical of myself. We start to notice things more. Um, So You think for adults, when we've already kind of formed our identity, so to speak, and our sense of self, even though that's constantly evolving, even into adulthood as we transition to different roles in our adult life and seasons, um, we might be able to handle that better. But young people who this is kind of the only air they've breathed since they were growing up, um, they have a lot harder time with this. And oftentimes, you know, have different sites where they can test post and see how things look. The, before fin- they- Hems, the Finstas? Yeah, the Finstas and things like that, or, or even ones that really no one's on, that oh, they can just gosh. check what they look like to make sure they feel secure with that before they post it. But they, the research says people who actually doctor their pictures don't feel any more content or satisfied than people who don't, and in fact, can become more hypercritical. Once they're oh. evaluating it through those lenses, so yeah, there's That's there's interesting. a huge impact in how we see ourselves.
0: Yeah, I I you know, gosh, I feel like I talk out of both sides of my mouth here. You know, I have an interview coming up with an amazingly gifted plastic surgeon and aesthetics expert in a couple of weeks, mm. and we we yeah. talked about this impact and and you know how it shows up in her business too, and um, you know, I think you can be a well-adjusted fully psychologically developed adult and do things that make yeah. you feel better about how Absolutely. you are. then you go to try to raise daughters, especially, and say, I mean, you have to get to that point before you are yeah. stable enough, but, you know, grown enough to make these decisions. But it really it's, it's become a difficult society to navigate because there are so many options and they do see us show up Do, you know, looking different ways with our makeup on and present. How can you tell me, mom, that I don't need to do this if, you know, I see you going out in your makeup, you know, but I don't need makeup. I'm beautiful without it. It's just like a lot of conflicting narratives, but it seems to be because of the exposure to all these different images and procedures on social media that weren't there before.
1: That's absolutely right. So there's definitely more exposure. There are things that have become more normal. And there are many things in our culture that have become more normal that that is not all that healthy that I talk about at the beginning part of the book. And with something like, um, you know, I do believe that women have a right to make their choices for themselves, if that is going to make them feel better. Then they need to they need to be empowered to do that, right? And and encourage. But we have to also realize the messaging that goes with it, and also consider what's the end point because we're all getting older. We can continue to change ourselves to you know to you know to infinity, um, and I think sometimes that becomes a slippery slope. It starts with one thing, right. and all of a sudden you may not recognize who you are at the end of it. That may be. Of desirable and beautiful for you, but you also have to think about the messaging that it sends, and and that your messaging is consistent, you know, with what you're saying to, especially if if you're a parent to your children.
0: Right. I love this phrase. Okay, so hold on, let me change this lower third here. I'm I'm producer and host today. I love it. Uh, okay, so speaking of social media, I have this thing, Neuro. It's very judgmental of me. I'm not going to walk away from. <laughs> From that, I, because it is rude of me, but there's there are couples where you scroll on Instagram and one half of the couple writes this mm. love poem to their partner on there. And not just, oh God, I love this guy. or Look at her. She's I the, know. It's yeah. like, you know, the Megan Fox of it all. Like we drink each <laughs> other's blood or like whatever. We love, we're dedicated. We love each other so much. I try not to be judgmental, but you have this phrase that you use in the book. It says decept- what did I say? Deception oh. shrouded in perception. Mm. And you talk specifically about this type of person where you see coming in to work with you who may be actually sadly dealing with some serious issues with their partner, but on the outside yeah. is presenting something completely different. Why does that happen? And mm-hmm. you speak to some people who feel the need to show up or be perceived in a certain way. Um, to, to sort of lift that burden from them because um, that was a that's a very unique to today's culture sort of phenomenon as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have seen it in real time. I'm literally working with a couple that is having some major issues. I mean, maybe one doesn't even want to be in the relationship anymore. And I jump on social media and it's literally them on top of a mountain saying these amazing things to each other. And I think it's a way, especially for the one who may be struggling, who wants this to continue to work, to validate themselves and to receive validation that, no, this is good. This is working. Sometimes it's a way to cover up the part that is more vulnerable and sensitive so that other people don't know about it. Um, And that's understandable. They're trying to protect that area of their life. And this is one way Mm -hmm. that they can kind of keep that situation at a distance from other people who may know that there's something going on, but it's certainly, it's not reflective of the reality of what's happening in that with that couple. And it doesn't have to be a couple, right? It can be um, an individual who is kind of giving off this perception that everything is great and they're killing it and crushing being a parent or whatever it might be. But really there, there are struggles underneath that. Um, and then sometimes it happens inadvertently. There are things posted that people perceive in a certain way, not necessarily intended by the person who's putting it out there. But but then there's this assumption made that that person has it all together, which, you know, we're human. We don't, <laughs> we're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. Any any advice for someone who feels the need to show up in the world that way? And I, I, I feel really mean that I said that because after you said those are the people that really want it to work. It makes me feel really bad. for feeling. I
1: different. mean, <laughs> no, don't judge. Yourself. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving best case scenario, right? Yes, I'm giving yes. people the benefit of the doubt, but there are also people who just, they know they have issues or maybe they're a piece of that issue. And that's part of the denial in it. You know, I have to show up and make sure everything looks great because people can't see the flaws in me because I can't confront those flaws in myself. They're too painful. You know, so there there are many different ways that that happens. And honestly, what I would say is you want people to really like you and love you for you and all sides of you. If you're putting something out there that's not really reflective of who you are, you're attracting people who don't know you. Yeah. you know and and I think we have to be real about that. I also think there is so much connection and vulnerability. I mean, this is Renee Brown, you know all day long. But um, there's connection and vulnerability. When you share something of yourself um, that people can see themselves in, that strengthens connection and communication um, and support in a very genuine way, not one that has anything to do with deception. And I think in the book, too, I talk about, you know, I'm a therapist, um, I'm a parent, and I have all this information from my line of work, but I still struggle with it like everyone else in those very human situations, relationships, parenting, you know, being a working mom. Um, And I'm pretty transparent about that, I think, in the book.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I I gravitate toward people who innately have that vulnerability. And I'm noticing as I get older that not everybody feels safe enough to do that. And I used to take mm-hmm. that as sort of a, you know, a judgment on my character or, or a reflection of my, like, okay, what's wrong with me that mm-hmm. I I go to therapy. Here's my, mm-hmm. I, I cannot tell you how many times i had given the number of my therapist out that I use both for my relationship and for my individual work, because I'm a constant, like, I, I don't care if there's a big life problem or a small life I'm talking to a therapist.
1: Yeah, are even great.
0: To ask dozens of people, and I'm like, it's okay. Like okay. this is why we, this is why I do this show. This is why you do your work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there should be no shame in that concept of vulnerability.
1: Yeah, no. And you know, most therapists are in therapy. We have to be in therapy. We have to sure. keep our own stuff in check and be aware of it because it can come out in our line of work mm-hmm. and be harmful to them, but also for our own evolution and our own self-growth and our own awareness and strengthening, right? I, I kind of see therapy as kind of emotional, psychological, oh like a, going to the gym, you know? It's so Therapy is an
0: investment in yourself and it's, in, mm. it's emotional intelligence. It's an investment yes. in, in emotional intelligence will lead, in my opinion, to success and happiness and other parts of it. If you can't control you, understand why you are, how and who you are, you're not showing up for anyone else in a meaningful way. That's exactly right. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about habits or as people on social media like to call these days, rituals, um, overall,
1: are these a good thing or a bad thing and why? Um, it depends on the habit, right. Or the ritual. So if it's something that makes you feel more alive, that you're living your life fuller, more connected, more centered, they're great things. And the thing is, I mean, we have habits that are not fulfilling. And us, me, you know, going on my phone whenever I'm bored is a habit that's not life-giving. So, and it's draining. And at the end of it, I can feel more tired. I can feel like I didn't make good use of my time. And no one has extra time. You know, if you ask people these days, no one has extra time. They often say, I don't have time to do this thing. But then we can look at how much time goes into things like devices or watching Netflix, and you know, they all have a place in our life, but um, if, we, if we really feel like we don't have time, we have to examine where the time goes. But when habits are centered around things that do make us feel more present, calmer, that reduce our stress, it can be a game changer in navigating this life, especially with all its challenges. So I try and outline some of the practices that we can begin to make habits. Um, Just by taking small steps to incorporate them in our day that can really move us forward and have all these benefits just in terms of mental clarity and feeling peaceful and calmer and even feeling a greater sense of purpose with our life exactly how it is.
0: This is still the first half, guys, by the way. We will get to the second sort of half of the book where you do directly address the pillars of contentment. but. um, Kind of start with the issues and kind of then get to the solutions. I love the part in the book where you reference um, information on how different religions discuss contentment. And mm. in particular, I was intrigued by the four truths of Buddhism that you detailed yeah. um, in relation to this whole concept of our constant desire to end struggling. We, we don't want to sit in discomfort. We want to move past it. Tell us a little more about those pillars and how one of those in particular impacted your view of what contentment and, and happiness really is.
1: Sunny, these are such good questions. Like have, people have not asked me these questions yet. I love oh. them. Yeah, and and it was really amazing. And, and when I, I wrote this book on such a ridiculous timeline, um, I didn't realize you have to turn in books a year before they're due. And a year before a year? they're due. Oh yeah. so, so I signed my contract. Um, mid-December 2020. And the book was due April 2021. And no one does anything in December, right? When you're celebrate Christmas. So January to April, I got it pushed out till June. And when I was writing this book, when I say there was so many moments of divine intervention that I had a thought. And then all of a sudden I came across a piece of uh, literature or research that exactly fit my line of thinking, without even really searching for it, there was divine intervention in writing this book. And coming across those four pillars were part of it. and and basically the the ones that I discuss is that um, there is suffering in life in everyone's life, no matter how amazing it looks, no matter how much money they have, they are going to have challenges just by virtue of being human. That is unavoidable. And what one of the pillars in Buddhism states is that, Part of what creates our suffering is this desire for more. And if we can, in Buddhism, they talk about eliminating desire, but I think at least keeping desire in check, right? Because we're not going to be able to eliminate desire. And and some desires are good. We were made for certain desires, you know, for love, for belonging, for connection. Those are innate desires that are really beautiful that we have. Um, but especially for in the material realm, um, if we can keep these desires in check we begin to reduce some of the suffering that we experience So it went along with this idea of this idea of acquisition and achievement creating this type of internal struggle that we are battling now as we're navigating mm-hmm. life so that's where that piece came um, into effect
0: i'm I'm curious I'm looking at this through the perspective of having talked to some friends recently who are going through very serious health Mm. struggles. Mm. I hear something about the concept of the desire to end struggle. I'm trying to figure out how you would use that piece of advice for someone who is experiencing a life and death struggle, a struggle over which they have no other desire but to survive. Yes. And no control. Can you sort of speak to
1: that part of it as well? Yeah. So the first key that I talked about in the book to contentment is acceptance and it's practicing acceptance. And, you know, there are certain situations where we know the outcome is difficult, um, certain ones where it could go different ways, you know, not all diagnoses, um, end in that worst case scenario situation, which, you know, there's other ways to talk about, um, you know, the finality of life as well in a spiritual sense that that can be encouraging. But, um, Acceptance is a big piece of releasing some of the tension and the stress and moving on to other parts of your life that can foster contentment, mm-hmm. right? So so when you're going through this health crisis, I mean, when you have to accept that this is hard, this is going to be hard, days are not going to be easy at times. We have to accept um, sometimes what the diagnosis is. Sometimes we can fight that and say, you know, I'm going to get through this, you know, whatever it is. And when we do that, we alleviate some of the resistance that keeps us stuck in that negative place. We name the emotions, we acknowledge the experience, and then we might have a little bit more emotional, psychological capacity to try some of the other practices, um, such as, you know, I had a friend who went through cancer and she said, you know, you can, there, there is a terrible side of cancer, obviously, there's also a beautiful side of cancer. She said, I have seen people show up for me. I have seen people call and care in ways I never had in my life. And I actually, as sad as it is, I never would have experienced this had I not gone through cancer. So there's someone who has both accepted a situation that's difficult, but also been able to then look at the beauty even in that struggle, even in that moment of challenge and found contentment in that. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is part acceptance, um, which then frees us up a little bit more emotionally to step into some of those other practices.
0: I love that we could talk the whole episode about that, but we're going to move on. There's so much good stuff to get to. And This is the next one. Okay. So the concept Mm. really jumped off the page um, for me as well. Talk a lot about the power of intuition and how being connected to our true self can can really Mm. be a guide, but you make a really important distinction here between the concept of following your emotions or trusting your gut and also marrying that with, with your mind and with logic. Yeah. us about the wise mind Mm -hmm. concept.
1: Yeah. Wise mind, is a concept in can you hear me okay? Am I lagging? You're good. We got you. Oh, good. Wise mind is a concept in dialectical behavioral therapy. And there is this popular kind of platitude that says, follow your feelings, you know, run with your feelings and trust your feelings um, or trust your gut, which I I can see where that's coming from. But as an anxiety specialist, that term makes those statements make me very nervous because, you know, sometimes for my clients, that means like run like hell from whatever it is that's creating the anxiety. Um, And wise mind is the meeting point between our rational self, as we know, as our mind or our um, intellect and our emotional self. And we don't necessarily let one rule over the other, but we find that meeting place between the two. And in the book, I call that, that is our voice of wisdom. It acknowledges and um, honors our feelings, but also the things that we know to be true Hmm. about who we are and about what we want out of this life. As a person of faith, I believe that's a place where God speaks, where the Holy Spirit speaks to me, where I've been led through this journey that I've been on. Um, One thing I didn't tell you was right before I got that email from an acquisitions editor, I had a heart-to-heart with God. I was like, okay, um, I know this is a crazy time, but I felt in that place of intuition that that time was coming to write the book. I didn't know how or when or what it was going to look like. And it was literally a month later that I got that email from that editor.
0: I feel like you have supernatural powers, Nero. (laughs) (laughs) Not the first time where we've talked where you've spoken of some real divine intervention kind of moment. I need to hang out with you more so because I need... (laughs) I need the direct line to
1: God that you have. You know, I bet you have it, and and I think anybody can have it. We just and part of why I wrote this book, Sonny, was we have so much noise circulating in our heads that we can't tap into that place. And and I think by engaging in these practices, we can clear out some of the noise, so we can hear. We can hear and be led um, from that place of wisdom. Uh, But there's so much circulating that unless we're intentional about clearing out that noise, we're not going to hear those really important messages that can really tell us things that might be coming.
0: Yeah. As a person who has medical anxiety, Mm. really, really like I've talked about this on the podcast several times like I've done a digital course on it. In fact, I have two more lessons I have to finish. But anyway, when you were talking about discerning our intuition from that sense of panic, someone Mm. can get from a triggering situation. It is important. And like my own therapist has worked with me on sort of viewing that as a circle and saying, okay, I'm going to chop it here. The thought and say, like you just mentioned, my mind has to step in and say, okay, what is really the likelihood that. A, B, and C are true. These things that are making me nervous. That was like a really big moment for me to realize that you can actually stop the pattern. of It's not intuition. It's anxiety Mm -hmm. speaking. So it's anxiety. Yeah. I love that distinction because I also feel that I have a very powerful intuition, but it can be blocked by that feeling.
1: It can be. And you know, anxiety speaks in our own voice, but it's not our voice. There's a distinction there. It sounds like our voice, but it is not who we are. And that's an important distinction to make when we're hearing these anxious thoughts. And even for me, when I'm discerning, okay, is this a spiritual type voice? Right. Um, is this what I consider the Holy Spirit? Or for some people, they believe in the universe or intuition or whatever it is. Or is this a different voice? I have to ask myself, whose voice is this? How do you um, and, it out, though? How do you, what's the one yeah, thing to do? I mean, one thing, fear is not of God. It's not spiritual fear. Um, That is the voice of anxiety. And that in and of itself, fear, self-doubt, those things that hold us back are not coming from that pure spiritual place. That's actually something coming against us. So even if we ask that question, whose voice is that? And we can hear self-doubt, we can hear fear, we can hear kind of negativity, um, not productive criticism, right? Not helpful criticism, but just negative thoughts. That is not that place of wisdom. And and just by saying whose voice is that, I can discern that. I yeah. can say, okay, no, no time for your voice today. Right. <laughs> I got other things to listen to.
0: I love that. Fear is not of God. I'm going to. No. Okay nope. so um I want to kind of flip to the other side the solutions based side of the book mm-hmm. the second half yeah. about the eight pillars of contentment I'm just going to read through them and then we'll kind of cherry pick a couple that we can do a deeper dive into but here sure. are <laughs> the eight pillars of contentment acceptance self compassion gratitude connection present focus priority and intention resilience and faith um let's, let's start with acceptance. And we'll, we'll probably will mm-hmm. not have time to deep dive on all of these. You you had a funny story in here too. I, I literally laughed <laughs> out. So you brought your daughter into the pediatrician who happened to be your oh, mom. And yeah. she, she, you were asking, you said, cause you were like, Oh, you know what? We're going to, even though this is her grandma, we're going to pretend like this is professional. I'm going to say, well, listen, right. she's having a hard time listening lately. And then your mom asks her why she's not listening. Well, she goes, I won't, Want. <laughs> I want.
1: I want when I want. I think she was like three or four.
0: You know. Oh my! God. I mean, I I laughed out loud at that. Um, I guess th- three-year-olds or four-year-olds struggle with accepting what is versus what they want to. Tell us a little yes. bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we all we want what we want, and when life doesn't look like that, when our expectations haven't been met there's a natural resistance within us that comes against that. And sometimes that resistance can prevent us from moving through it. It can prevent us from moving forward, closer to the situations that we do want in our life. And the first piece of that is acceptance, is is saying, okay, what like that serenity prayer, what about this can I not change? Um, But what about it can I change? And even in the situation that we can't change, what is still good in our life? Sometimes we can't access that piece of it. What is still good in our life until we practice that acceptance. And I, I think in the book, I say acceptance is one of those things. It's easier to define by what it isn't than what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I talk about is you know people who ask why questions all the time. Why did this happen to me? Why am I going through this? Look, we're not going to have a lot of those answers on this side you know, we're not. So um, the why questions can prevent us. I think we need to ask them if we're feeling it, talk about it, ask it, get it out. But recognize that even if we got answers, they may not be good enough in this moment with our limited understanding of our situation and our life purpose, Even you know. So um, by moving from the why questions and asking the what and the how questions, all right, how do I move through this? Um, how can I move forward in this? What can I still do? And what can I find purpose in even amidst the situation? Uh, even who questions, who can I talk to? Who can I connect with in this moment? They can help us move towards acceptance in a way that the why questions can't.
0: Oh, I love that. Marking that one down as well to keep... <laughs> okay. So self-compassion was another one. I want to move on to gratitude, yeah. which is a pillar of contentment. Um <sighs> I say this gratitude has become a platitude. Everybody knows about the power of gratitude these days. Right. And the value of even a simple practice of writing down three things we're grateful for. But I do want to, I do want to double back on this because it does seem to be such a huge part of people's journey to contentment. So Mm. tell us a little bit about how gratitude can, can help us not only open us up to more positive happening, but also make us feel a sense of happiness in the present.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, even with Um, people who have anxiety. So there's something called the negativity bias that our brains are wired to store more of the negative experiences rather than the positive, which from an evolutionary standpoint makes sense, right? If you're kind of surviving for your life in the woods, you want to be aware of when there's a bear there, not just sitting there admiring the flowers. So our brains have developed in that way. And people who have anxiety tend to go to the negative, the worst case scenario. I mean, they certainly have that negativity bias strengthened in their mind. But what gratitude does is it rewires our brain towards the positive. So any client I have who's who dealing with anxiety, which essentially is kind of worst case scenario negative thinking, mm-hmm. gratitude practice is part of their treatment because we want to weaken those neural pathways that promote that negative thought um, to the point where they get disintegrated and we replace them with these pathways that move us towards seeing the world through a more positive lens. And gratitude is a practice that enables to rewire ourselves um, neurobiologically. It is powerful. It is a mood elevator. Um, It enables us to re-experience these pieces of life um, that we've experienced in the past that were positive. And you know, our brain can't tell the difference between past and what we're Reliving in the moment in detail, so we experience that surge of uh, mood-elevating neurochemicals again.
0: Tell us one quick thing to do every day. Then one gratitude practice. We we talked in promoting this episode about how you do have some really practical ways of including ways toward contentment uh-huh. that don't involve, like you said, taking a meditation trip to Nepal.
1: <laughs> so I know what do I do daily? That's right. You you and I with all our kids are not. I mean, all I want to. All. Oh my God. I know
0: seven children in paradise, can you
1: imagine? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there'll be time for that. We need to I put know. them on their in their own monastery though. Um, <laughs> so I think even just I mean when there is power and it's shown the research uh, in the research that the effects of a gratitude practice last weeks to months longer if you're actually writing things down. So even taking a journal and bullet pointing, if you're not a writer, I even bullet point in my journal, I wrote a book, but not when it comes to my journal, bullet point, kind of three good things every day or every couple days, even every three or four days, so that when you're feeling, um, you know, in that challenging situation, when you're feeling negative, you have one place to go to, to read them over, you know, we could have had a great day on Monday and by Friday, we've forgotten it and are totally consumed with the stress of our life. But if we have a place to go back to, that's powerful. Even before you go to bed at night, take literally 60 seconds and say, "What was good today? What did mm-hmm. I enjoy today?"
0: Say it in your mind rather than write it to someone. Yes. The yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, writing the effects last longer, um, oh. and I think yeah, that's what the research says. I mean, even people who wrote a note of gratitude to someone and didn't send it experienced benefits that outweighed someone just saying it to someone. So there's something about writing that ingrains it in a different way, okay. but you can still have positive benefits just by, before you go to bed, asking yourself that question, what was good today? Come up with two or three things, or if it was a really bad day, ask yourself what yeah. didn't suck today? You know, cause that helps put it in perspective. Yeah. If you're not feeling like life is great. I remember going through a
0: really bad period. And when I would pray at night, you know, cause I do make a practice of trying to be conscious, at least of things I'm grateful for. And mm-hmm. all I could come up with was I got two legs that walk me anywhere I want to go. And I mean, and, yeah. and lungs that are breathed. I mean, like, even if it's that,
1: even if it's a bed that yes. you're sleeping, there's
0: always something,
1: you know, there's something. And one thing that helps me access a place of gratitude, I think about who would give anything right now to be walking in my shoes, yeah. to have the challenges that I have in this moment? Who would want that? And you can think of people who are in situations where they would much rather trade lives with ours. And that's not minimizing our own challenges because we work through that, but, but also to give it a perspective that we might need in that moment.
0: I love that. Let's talk about another pillar of contentment that you talk about in the book, Connection what is a mode of connection that's most helpful in moving us toward a sense of happiness or contentment?
1: Yeah, I I really believe, especially coming through COVID, I mean, it was great to have screen connections, but face-to-face connection where we're trying to strengthen or build a relationship is definitely the most gratifying. Um, And that could be, you know, one thing I like to do is I like to schedule time to take a walk with a friend. That way I'm Getting outside and getting some fresh air, which is also proven to have incredible benefits for our health, but also catching up with someone and being invested in their life and having allowing them access to mine as well. So I do think that face to face connection is important, but we can also connect if we don't have those people in our life through service, through volunteering, right. to um, joining some group or organization. That you connect with people, maybe that you don't know, but through a common cause, working at a food pantry, go if you have the opportunity, going on a missions type trip, Habitat for Humanity, those types of things. Um, but even a couple, an hour, a couple times a week, you know, a couple times a month, I mean, um, can make a big difference in terms of connection. And all have been proven to release those mood elevating neurochemicals: dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin. So they work, they work to make us feel happier. Awesome.
0: Um, okay, let's go on. I have, we have priority and intention is another one, present focus, but I want to talk about resilience.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you run through a list of sort of characteristics or, or things that people can do to become resilient in the book. Can you just run us through quickly what some of those are? Because that is a, a worthy quality to try to attain.
1: Yeah. You know, people think that you're either born with resilience or you're not, but we can certainly cultivate a resiliency mindset. And what that is, is how I like to think about it. It's psychological and emotional flexibility. When we come to an expectation that hasn't been met, when we come to a situation that's difficult for us to look at it and say, okay, this is hard, but I'm going to get through this. I've gotten through hard things in the past. And when we really can get strong in terms of a resiliency mindset, to be able to still see good in our life, even in that moment. And the interesting thing is I put resilience at the end because a lot of the practices that cultivate resilience are those other keys that I talk about in the book, gratitude, connection, um, being present focus, you know, present focus also could mean being mindful Mm -hmm. of the things that are happening around you, investing in the people who are around you. So all of those practices do cultivate that type of resiliency mm-hmm. mindset, and that's why I put it towards the end um, one of the the last keys in the book. I love
0: that it's like we're adding them up and getting to that as yeah, exactly uh, the last one which I know uh, is a plays a big part in your own sort mm. of journey professionally and personally is faith, and, yeah um, people that listen to this podcast, I'm sure are from various faith backgrounds yeah. I want to know how faith plays a role in your sense of contentment and how we can use that key that pillar to find that in our lives as well Mm.
1: so it's interesting when i was writing about faith i know people who are content who don't have faith Um, that's that's a given they're content they feel happy in their life Um, and what the research says is it kind of questions is it faith is it this individual connection with something bigger than you Or is it that organized religion type setting and what that affords connection, um, you know, opportunities to serve, common interests, a place of belonging, which meets one of our deepest needs and people who love you, you know, because they kind of have to, you know, so they're in that setting. Like family, You're stuck with
0: me. (laughs) That's
1: right. That's right. You know, you can't be going to church and be like, I hate you. No, it just, (laughs) so, um, Trying to differentiate between is it that or actually this connection, this personal connection. And for me, um, especially going through COVID, when we couldn't connect with people, when churches were shut down, that took that off the table for me. It was more me and God listening to that voice that brought this deep sense of peace and contentment, and this feeling like, you know what, you you're gonna be okay that you're going to get through this. And that was even at the beginning stages when we really didn't know how this was going to play out. Yeah, you're working and you have four kids at home. Um, I'm going to meet you in that and help you get through it. And there are different ways that we can experience that and people connect with that. Again, we're talking about that voice or that intuition. Um, But to me, that is at the center of my contentment. If I can connect to that voice, I begin to hear truth. You know, what is true in my life yeah. uh, and, and be able to put other things into perspective. And it's it's a piece that you can't really explain until you've stepped into it, right. because sometimes it is not reflective of anything going on. Your, your whole life can be uh, out of control and in these incredibly stressful situations. But there's a piece that I find there um, that I haven't been able to access in other ways. Yeah. You know,
0: that's why to me, this is going to make me sound like a bad Catholic <laughs> going to church has <laughs> nope. never mm-hmm. been as important as my own. To me, faith is a private thing. And I always yeah. sort of marvel at people who are the preachers of the world or the pastors of the world. And I know there's a need for people who are more vocal about their beliefs, but mm-hmm. it, it's so, it's so much less important to me to show that I'm faithful than it is to be faithful. And I think that it's important to like let people know, especially in the Christian sort of faith where like you said, there's community tied up in, in church going, and there's this expectation of front facing faith. Like you're not yeah. a good Christian if you don't know the Bible, you're not a good Catholic right. if you don't die. I mean, I, it, to me, that's BS. Like you, mm-hmm. you show up and your book sort of was, was very, um, sort of welcoming to people of all beliefs in that way, and saying, "Okay, you, it's not about the show. It's not about how you show up. It's about how you are inside, because that's mm. that's to the contentment and the happiness that we're all sort of striving for."
1: Yeah, you know, if I think what you said has so much insight into it, and and if you think of any relationship, there are parts of that relationship that you might share with the world you know, things that go on between you and your kids and things that go on with you and your husband, you might share that with the world, but then there are parts that are very private between the two of you, right. Mm -hmm. That were only meant for the two of you. And that's how I feel about faith too. There are things that I share about it. And then there are things that are just between me and God, you know, that, that are for me. And so there is that private, um, piece of it. I'm, I'm really glad that you said the book was welcoming because that was the intent, um, I do believe that there that all of us have this ability to hear and to connect with God. I mean, people call that different things, um, but I believe, and I I really believe God wants to be found. Like He doesn't want to be hiding. <laughs> he wants to help. So um, I think it's it's about again like clearing out the noise and making time for that stillness and that space, and to really listen and ask the questions that, that we come up with. And what we did see though, in COVID as therapists, it was, it was amazing at one point, all of us, I mean, from different religions, non-religious people coming in, talking about faith and God and having these existential anxieties and even crises, because at a certain point, you're, we're all going to have, we all get to the point where this life ends. Right. Mm -hmm. And at that point, there are questions. And even if you've been content your whole life, without faith at that point you might start asking questions about what what's next it Nero,
0: was, it next. was um, a, a confrontation of our mortality on an in mass scale for sure depending. absolutely what may, yeah. I just have to ask you
1: this before we wrap what makes you believe in God Nero Oh me um, I mean when I I look at it from a couple different ways I mean when I've experienced God in my life, even the way this book came about, I mean, things don't happen that way. And it followed the path of, I I heard that this time was coming and then the the door opened right to it. Um, But also, I mean, I'm a Christian and not necessarily in a a very organized sense, um, but I do follow Jesus and the life of Jesus. And not only have I experienced that voice in my life, just looking at his teachings and believing in that sacrifice, but I also have researched Jesus as a historical figure. I know he existed. He's talked about in many other sources besides the Bible. So I know that there's a truth to that um, as well. It's not just a subjective experience that I've experienced, but it has been my personal experience. And the continuation and the growth of that spirituality that keeps me connected to God. He keeps proving himself to me in my life. I you know totally. it, I'm
0: hanging out with you soon because yeah. you, you've got you've got a divine hand on your shoulder, my friend. But well, like you said, we all get, can get there by cultivating yeah. that that sort of sense of peace in our own lives. So yeah.
1: I, I talk about just sit in that silence and ask the questions and listen for what comes to the surface. And to me, that's, that's where I believe that God wants to speak. It is to the, in the one-to-one. Yes. He speaks through churches. He speaks through different people. He can speak through an Instagram post. You know, you happen to come across at the right moment. Um, but there is so much there's, it's so rich that one-on-one experience when you can tap into it.
0: Um, I am so grateful Nero for your time today with an hour has flown by and, um, I'm, just grateful that you like gave us a peek into this amazing book. So it's called This Book Won't Make You Happy, which is the best title ever. Um, just so I don't know. There's something so like, I don't know, cute and like, oh, yes. It's, OK, got it. So what will make me happy? Tell us where right. to find the book and when, more importantly, it will be available.
1: Yeah. So right now, actually, and this was another <laughs> odd thing that we're still trying to figure out. The book started shipping out almost a month before the release date, which is a little unusual. So um, just watching to see what that means. But you can find it, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, Target online, indie bookstores. You can go to your local bookstore if you want to buy local, which I strongly encourage, and right. say, hey, can you get me this book? Um, and that's very much appreciated as well. But it, it is available right now, even though the release date isn't until next week.
0: Oh, good to know. And where do we find you on social media in person for anybody who might be in your area?
1: Yep. You can, I'm, um, I live in Connecticut in Fairfield County in Ridgefield. Um, but you can find me on social media at Nero Feliciano at my website, nerofeliciano.com. And I write for psychology today, a blog called the good enough life. And it's supposed to be two different, the good and enough, not, not like mediocre. Um, (laughs) <laughs> um, people, okay it's not just good enough <laughs> that's right it's good and it's enough and also for anyone who orders this book before um uh, the 11th of april i have some pre-order bonuses that you can get on my website i have um a seven-day guide sunny you can you can get it too um it's called satisfied it's a, just seven days which really should be practiced over seven weeks because you can't change your life in seven days. Um, it is a guide to feeling more satisfied with your life and two videos. One on some of my best tips for anxiety, um, a very basic rundown of relaxation, breathing and meditation, which can get us into that present focus mindset um, and a little excerpt of the book tip. Awesome.
0: Duro, thank you again so much for your time. I am so, so grateful oh. for it.
1: Thank you. I love seeing you and I love talking with you. And I love just all that you're doing and how you are being used in this world to bring so much hope and light. You have an important purpose.
0: Oh, thanks, Nero. That means more you than do. you know. Thank you, friend. Hope to talk to you soon. All right, guys. Thank you for watching and or listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Wow. I feel peaceful. You know, those people that you hear their voice and you're like, oh, you just feel that they have a a direct connection to God. That's row. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Please do get it. It is very approachable. It's got advice that you can immediately start to put into, uh, put into effect right away that I promise will make you feel just a little happier and more content. Um, If you haven't already, guys, leave a rating and review on the podcast, especially Apple Podcasts. That makes a huge difference in getting this show out to people who might enjoy it or find it useful in some way. So do that by opening the podcast app, scroll down on the show page, tap five stars and leave your review. And that's it. We'll be back next week with more good stuff on We Gotta Talk. Thank you again so much for watching and listening, and we will see you soon.